Sometimes God speaks in a way that you did not anticipate, and at a time uh, you might not have been ready for. Um, back in August, I traveled out to California, my home state, to do a wedding for a friend of mine, an Italian family. Um, the parents were actually my first wedding when I was 31 years old as a new pastor. So their son was playing professional basketball in Italy, still is, and he was flying home to uh, get married. I was going to do the wedding in the same cathedral that I did his parents' wedding in. So it was, it's like one of those deja vu mini ministry moments. It's like, where did all those years go by uh, from when I married his parents? And so it was fun uh, doing the wedding. Uh, so we were hanging out in Northern California for a couple days. Since I was at that church in that area for 20 years, I know a lot of people. Um, and so Liz and I had a few days to kind of hang out. And so we were staying uh, with the matriarch of the family on her estate. Uh, and so one day we had some time to kill. So we decided we would get on uh, Interstate 99, head north to Lodi uh, to our favorite Mexican restaurants. And that's what Californians do. They eat great Mexican food. So, uh, amen. Thank you. There's one here. Where are you? Praise God for you. Yes, we'll talk later. Uh, that's usually what Californians ask me when they come here to the D.C. It's like, have you found a great Mexican restaurant? So, yeah. So, um, so anyway, Liz and I are like, oh, man, we're back in California. We can get some really great Mexican food. So, uh, so we hopped on the freeway, got in our rental car. And I don't know about you. I mean, you, you, one of the first, I, a car doesn't roll if it's not got, it has to have good tunes. You know what I'm saying? So I'm a 70s guy. You know, I'm a Led Zeppelin dude. Uh, I grew up in that era. I like Genesis, I like Journey, I'm in mean, Eddie Money, I like all those groups. Um, and so I, first thing I did when I got the car at the airport was synced it to my car. You know, car doesn't run without some good music. And so, um, so we jumped on the freeway, hooks up to my Apple phone, starts playing a random, you know, like Genesis song or something. And, um, and, we're, and we're cruising along, and, and uh, after about a mile and a half is when it happened. Uh, we're heading north to Lodi, seven mile drive. Um, Going to meet some friends there at a restaurant uh, that I'd never been to, but they said it was really good. And the next song that came on, because they're arbitrarily just coming on. I didn't pick, I didn't pick them. And the next song that came on was a country western song. I, does it look like I'm into country western? Uh, no, I am not in country western. But there is one, count them, one country western song on my phone. Uh, and I will explain to you the significance of that song when I show you something. Because I want to show you... Uh, Vince Gill singing this song and explain to you how God spoke through this song. It was one of those moments in your life that you will, I have to tell my grandchildren about this. I have to tell my church about this. I have to explain to them how God spoke in a most profound way through this country western song. Uh, you'll, you'll see what I mean when we talk about it, but I want to play a little bit of it first to let you hear what we heard on the freeway. So here's a clip. Sir, 
That is a powerful song. I think Vince Gill wrote that for a brother that passed away. Uh, for me, the significance of that lone country western song on my phone was my father, uh, who was from South Carolina, who was a southerner, um, who served in the Navy during, World, during the Korean War. Um, when he had brain cancer before I came here, uh, I was with him every day, multiple times, uh, and, and I was with him when he died. That was his song. That was on his laptop. Whenever I would go see my dad, I cannot tell you how many times I saw him sitting with that laptop playing that song because he realized he was going to go rest high on that mountain and he was going to go a shouting. And I almost can't even talk about that, but I had, it's been months, so I thought I could probably talk about it. But it, it is a highly emotional thing because God spoke in my car that day through this country western song. So if you don't think God doesn't like country, think again. Because uh, <laughs> he used that song. And Liz and I were both totally quiet as we played. And I'm, let me explain you the significance of it. We're driving seven miles to a restaurant on a little stretch of freeway going, you know, 65 miles an hour. That song happened to come on when we were just south of the cemetery where we buried my dad. What is most significant is as I took an exit that I had never taken before of all the 20 years I lived there to go to a, a restaurant I'd never been to, um, when I took the exit, and, and the exit was just, just the, it was parallel to the cemetery where I had done my dad's funeral. And when I got to the top of the off-ramp to then head west, that song concluded at the top of the off-ramp, and I looked and I was parallel with my dad's grave. You can't write that stuff. That is, I'm not a mathematician, but if you were somehow crunch those numbers, the probability of that occurring with the amount of songs that are on my phone, I mean, I have hundreds of songs on my phone, that that song would play at the precise moment on the freeway and then at the top of the exit where I was parallel with the military portion of the cemetery because I could see the giant eagle in the flag and I knew exactly where my dad's grave was and that was God, was it not? What was he saying? I, told, I looked at Liz and I, because we were totally quiet the whole time. It was just one of those mystical moments. And I looked at her and I said, God just spoke. And here's what he told me. Your dad's okay. He's with me. And he came to heaven singing, shouting. God speaks, doesn't he? Most people don't even listen to him when he speaks. He speaks profoundly. Now, what has that got to do with Jeremiah 23? Because that's not anything about country, western, anything in Jeremiah 23. Well, Jeremiah 23 is another way that God speaks. He can speak sometimes through a song. Sometimes he can speak through a prophecy because God gave you a brain to think. And faith is not blind. It's based on the evidence of his hand. And all throughout Christmas, for the last several weeks, we've studied the prophecies that are great, given concerning the coming of the Messiah, starting in Genesis, working our way th uh, through the Old Testament to look at these 60 exact prophecies. I mean, what city was he born in? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 written 800 years before his birth, specifies the city. He can't control that, he can't control that variable. It says what, uh, what tribal line he's going to come through. What tribe was he born to? Line of Judah. Uh, G Genesis 49. Moses wrote about that. 
a thousand years before we were even thinking about these things. Uh, what line would he be born through through the line of Judah? Well, line of David. Why? Second Samuel 7 said he's going to be the king of kings when he comes. Uh, the great Davidic king. When you study the genealogical list of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and, and Luke chapter 3, he was Davidic in his origin through his mom and his father. So it's, just, it's exciting stuff. Who was Jesus? He was the Lord. He was the Lord. Uh, and what you find in, Genesis, or in Jeremiah 23 is another exact prophecy um, where you can look at the evidence and, and ask yourself, does Christ fulfill this? Yeah, to the letter. It's not... It's not, it, 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 it's so statistically mind-boggling, he had to be who he was. Like when I think about the freeway that day, that had to be God speaking, and it was. So I hope God speaks to you tonight uh, through the six verses we're going to analyze quickly. And I'm going to tell you, there, as we look at this, and there, the motif of this passage is pretty, hard, uh, pretty easy to see. Uh, it talks about hardness, national hardness. They're, they're facing uh, destruction by the Babylonians in 586. This is probably about 587 when this prophecy was given. But in this prophecy, uh, Jeremiah uh, is going to speak the truth to his people. And it's not easy to speak truth to your people because uh, then you're not everybody's friend. But that was his ministry. He's, the, he's called the weeping prophet. He shared God's truth with the nation who had rejected God. And what you're going to find is hardness, political hardness, personal hardness in the present leads to a great messianic hope for the future. It's how God rolls. He looks at you at the result of your sin and judgment that's coming on you and the hard things that are going on in your life, and he says, but, there, but there's always hope in those things. Let me point you to some hope. And, and you'll find in this passage, it's going it's to divide into two quadrants. To validate that point, he has two points, two subpoints. He's going to first tell you that the people had a royal problem. Boy, did they. They had a political problem. Because for 348 years... If you count from the split of the empire uh, into two, two nations, uh, Israel split in 930 B.C. under Rehoboam over taxation. Uh, ten tribes went to the north, two tribes stayed to the south. Um, the, the northern tribes are carried away into captivity in 722 B.C. by Sennacherib, the Assyrian. Uh, the other tribes lasted longer because they had at least a few godly kings like Josiah. But the majority of their kings were clueless, mindless, wicked men. And God finally says, after 340 years of being gracious toward them, I'm going to have to discipline you as my people. I don't want to, but I'm holy and I have to. So when you get to this chapter, notice God's first word to them. Uh, bear in mind, contextually, in, in history, there's already been two invasions of the nation by the Babylonians, the greatest military at the time. They've invaded Israel in 605 B.C. and then in 598 B.C., and the, and the Israelites couldn't stop them. And they carried away the intelligentsia of the nation back 600 miles to Babylon. That's when they, they swept up Daniel of the book of Daniel when he was a teenager. Uh, and we all know what Daniel did when he got to Babylon. He stood up for God. But here you find they had a problem with their politicians. Look at verse 1. When God says, woe to you, it's not a good thing. Woe to the shepherds who are doing what? Destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. I know it's evening. It's Christmas Eve evening. Grammar is still exciting to study, isn't it? Isn't it? Like what? Like participles. Don't you love them? I do. Do you see two participles there? I do. It, those words end in the Hebrew text with the ing ending. And you have several grammatical options of classifying this. Uh, one of them is the doer of use of the participle. What's that mean? Their shepherds, their political leaders, 
were skilled at constantly destroying everything about the nation that was sacred, holy, and logical. Don't think anything has changed in the last couple thousand years. Scattering the sheep. What happens when political leaders destroy a nation? People scatter. They scatter. Uh, Israelites, they scattered. They, they got out of Dodge. They got out of Jerusalem. They moved to the mountains. They found caves. They got out of the way. And then they were swept up into deportations. They were really scattered. And God says, woe to you. Now, I've told you this before. I'll tell you this again because you may not remember. Um, Hebrew, you read from right to left, and all of the vowel points are below the consonants. Uh, that's how you read it, right to left. The very first word in the Hebrew text should be a verb, verb, subject, object. When it's not a verb, it's, it's switched. It's for emphasis. Is woe a verb? It's not a verb. It's not a verb. Why is it there? God's like, I need to get your attention as politicians. Now, how do I know he's talking to politicians? Because he calls them shepherds. Because what's a politician supposed to be? A shepherd. What does a shepherd do? He feeds his people. He makes sure they have food. He protects them from wolves who might want to destroy them. Uh, and uh, he, he, he's there for the sheep constantly. Uh, how do we know it shepherds contextually? We'll just study uh, chapter 21 and 22. He castigates all the final kings of Israel before their deportation in 586. And the last king that really blew it was Zedekiah. And so he says, what are you shepherds, you final kings who did not, well, you didn't showcase me to the people. You didn't teach the truth. You taught the people what they ever wanted to hear. He says, woe to you. Now remember, I told you the first part of the prophecy is negative. The next part's positive. So hang with me through the negative. Verse 2, what's he say? Therefore, therefore tells you that there's a cause-effect relationship. Uh, because you've done this kind of activity, there's a result to pay with God. Therefore, the Lord says, uh, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, what, is, what does he say to them? He says, uh, you have scattered my flock, uh, and you've driven them away, and I have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. So in our vernacular, I know it's not in the Bible, but... The motif is there. What goes around comes around. So you can live a wicked life for as long as you want and think you're getting away with it. Eventually, God says, I'm holy, and you will pay a divine price. I will discipline you because I love you to waken you up, to bring you back, to walk in with me. And he tells his political leaders, you men didn't lead by the law anymore. You made your own laws. You flaunted my law, and I'm about to come attend to you because you won't attend to my people shepherding the flock. What exactly did they do? Like, what are they guilty of? I've, I've had entire, both my degrees are in the Old Testament and Hebrew, so I've had a lot of classes on the, the, the precipitating factors to the fall of Israel in 586 BC with Nebuchadnezzar. So what exactly did they do? So since, since we only have 30 minutes, let's summarize. Jeremiah 2.8 tells you what the problem was in the nation. The priest did not say, these are pastors, where's the Lord? They stopped pointing people to God. Uh, and, and those who handle the law, uh, the, the Torah, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, etc., they, they didn't know me. They, they didn't read the Bible anymore. That, that's a problem. And then he says, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, a false god, and they walked up to the things that don't profit. So you got the kings, the prophets, and the priests all threw God's word to the wind, threw God to the wind, and when truth wasn't taught anymore, then any belief system was okay. And that meant they loved those people because they, those kinds of people told the people what they wanted to hear. But men like Jeremiah, who spoke the truth, oh, they, they didn't like him. Jeremiah 5 uh, says this about the leaders of the nation. They're fat. They're sleek. They excel in what? 
deeds of wickedness. They don't plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the poor. They don't care about anybody underneath them but themselves. Sound familiar? Yeah. The same holy God who sat on that throne at this time, uh, still on that throne. That's the same God. And what does he say here? Um, I like what he says at the end of this passage in Jeremiah 5. It says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. Why? Because they're telling me what I want to hear so I can go sin and feel good about it. And then God says at the end of uh, chapter 5 and verse 31, But what will you do at the end of it? Translated, sin always has an end to it. I mean, whether you're doing drugs, drinking too much, whatever it is that you're doing that's sinful, there's always an end to that when God says, what goes around comes around, and I, I need to get your attention. Well, in the middle of all of that that was about to happen, because in about a year, the country was going to fall to the Babylonians. In the middle of that, the people were being told, told false messages. And so uh, they did not believe they were going to be totally destroyed as a nation, and the argument was, the temple's here. God would never let them destroy Israel because we have the temple. And God's going to tell them through Jeremiah's pen, I would rather have your heart. I would rather have your obedience than a building. But he's going to give them hope. He's going to give them hope. And the hope is what we want to focus on this Christmas because it has everything to do with the, the Messiah, Messianic hope. Verses 5 to 8. People had a royal problem with their political leaders, leading them away from God. And God says, uh, I'm going to send you the ultimate shepherd. Verses 5 to 8. What's he say? Well, he says in, in, in verse 3, he says, I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. Then they shall bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. So long before he ever judges them in 586 B.C., he tells them, I'm going to send you to captivity, but I'm going to bring you back because I love you, but I have to first discipline you for sin. But I'm going to bring you back. You have to understand the timing of this. This is about 587 B.C. The return of Israel back to the land, no one saw it coming because the greatest power on the planet, the Babylonians, had just seized them. But later, if you study history, Cyrus, king of Persia, comes to the forefront and destroys the Babylonians in one evening. No one saw that coming. And when he did that, he allowed the Jews to return to the land. So he destroys the Babylonians in five. 39 B.C., he allows the Jews to go back in 537 B.C. Remember, it's 587 B.C. when he's given the prophecy concerning the coming of the, the king of kings. Do you know what's going to happen to your stock by the end of the week? I can tell you. It's going to go down. That's what my stock's been doing. Every time I check it, I checked it last night, it's down. I checked it the night before, it's down. It's like, serious? It's been down all year. Uh, how did he know what was going to happen this many years ahead? They came back in three returns. The first return was under a guy named Zerubbabel. He was from the line of David, the kingly line. He came back with the high priest Joshua, whose name in Hebrew, Yeshua. That's the name of Jesus. It means savior. Second return, 80 years later in 485 BC, um, they came back with Ezra the priest. And then the third return came 14 years after that in 1444, 1445 BC. They came back when Nehemiah was allowed to return uh, under Artaxerxes, he was able to come back and rebuild the walls. This is 142 years. <laughs> and you tell me, well, God doesn't speak. You're just not listening. 
He's speaking with great specificity. In fact, he, he told you he's going to return his people to the land 142 years before he did it. That's mind-boggling. And what did he say he was going to do? Well, in verse 4, he says, I'm going to raise up shepherds, plural, over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, his people, nor terrified, uh, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, you have to ask yourself, so who are the shepherds contextually? They're politicians. So God says, I'm going to judge you because of your politicians, priests, they've all been wicked. You're going to go into captivity for 70 years. I'm going to eventually free you and bring you back to your land, and I'm going to put shepherds over you to care for you, men like well, Zerubbabel, uh, Joshua, Nehemiah, Ezra, etc. shepherds. But it tells you it's, it's an unusual kind of peace that they bring because he says at that time, the people won't be afraid any longer, nor they're going to be terrified. I've been taking people on archaeology trips to Israel for 25 years. I can tell you they are still afraid and they're still terrified over there because there are places you can go over there well, case in point, uh, last time I was in Israel, right before COVID hit, I took our group on the Golan Heights uh, up on Mount Bintal. Uh, it's the mountain that guards the pass for the Bekaa Valley where the tanks came through from Syria in the Sixth Day War. Uh, there's tanks burned out alongside the road. Uh, it, it's kind of a somber place. And as I sat up there and had a, had a cup of coffee, I listened to rocket fire, mortar fire, for two hours around Damascus. It's not a safe place. Uh, we were in a safe location with the IDF, but never has it been fulfilled in history where Israel has been at peace. Never. Their enemies, Hezbollah, Hamas, etc., they're all around them. My guide, uh, who is a um, master sergeant uh, in their paratrooping corps, told me one day sitting on Mount Arabal looking over the Sea of Galilee, uh, he said, Marty, uh, we Jewish people are good people. We just live in a really tough neighborhood. I'm like, yeah, you're no kidding. Yeah. But the hope for my friend, uh, Asher, Ashkenazi is his name, is that one day uh, the Messiah will come and he will rule and reign and there will be no enemies because he's the king of peace. See, uh, Jesus, uh, we know, fulfills these things uh, because he's mentioned here. How do I know? Well, look what he says in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, uh, the, the kingly line, a what? A righteous branch righteous branch. I love gardening. I mean, it is my passion. When I used to be a landscaper and got paid for it, I couldn't believe they paid me for doing something I love to do. If you, have a, if you cut a tree down and you don't grind the stump, you have an issue. Because what happens? You cut down an oak tree and you don't grind it, what do you get? You get another, you get another one of those trees. Little suckers start pop, popping up and you're like, whoa! Uh, you do, if you don't cut those down, you're going to get another oak tree. So when the Babylonians cut down the Davidic tree, the regal line, everybody in the world thought that's it for them. God says, no, I got other plans. I'm going to bring the branch. What's a branch? Uh, it's a sucker. The sucker that, you know, comes out of it, looks like a dead stump, and it comes out of that. Who's this one that's going to come? Well, it says this branch that's going to come, he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness. He's going to do the thing that none of the kings of Israel ever did. Be wise in his decisions, do justice to people, and, and rule in holiness. It's the same thing we're missing in leaders today. Those three things. They're only rolled up in the one who's coming. Who's that? Well, that, that would be Jesus. That would be the Messiah. He's the only one equipped to do it. It says that he's going to do all those things. Who is it? That's the Davidic king. He's going to rule 
and bring peace, shalom, on a worldwide basis. And then he culminates it in verse 6 by saying this. This is just jaw-dropping. In his days, when this, this person comes, this branch, out of this we thought was a dead Davidic line, Judah will be what? Saved. And Israel, the other half of the nation that broke away in 930 BC, will dwell what? Do they dwell securely now? Not so much. Not so much. I've been yelled at there. I've been spit on. I've had all kinds of things happen to me over there uh, as I've traveled throughout the nation. Uh, but there's no place like going to Israel and walking where Christ walked. Because in, the, in his days, in the coming one, in his days, Judah and Israel, both halves of the nation, will dwell securely. They can only dwell securely because he brings peace. Because what is his name? Shalom. He brings peace. What's his name? It tells you his name. What's the name of the one that's coming? It's in English. You can read it. What it? The Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Uh, let's analyze that. Uh, he's called the Lord. Why is it capitalized? Because it's important. Uh, because if it wasn't capitalized, it would be Adonai, like master. This is capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh. This is the name of God uh, that Moses got at the burning bush when he said to him, hey, I'm over 80 and you want me to deliver your people? I have issues. I'm old and I stutter. How can I do it? And I need a name. What's your name, God? Give me a name. And God says, tell him I am has sent you. The great ontological one who's outside of time and space. That's the Lord. But don't you find it interesting? He says, it, it's not the Lord, his righteousness. It's the Lord, our righteousness. Why do he do that? Why do he say the Lord, our righteousness? Well, I'm, I'm glad he did. Because this one that is coming, the, the branch that was coming, that's the Messiah. That's, remember Isaiah 7:14? It says that a virgin shall be with child, and we will call this child's name Emmanuel. And what's that mean? God with us. That's who's coming. He's telling you uh, God was coming. God came. That was who Jesus was when he came. He came first to deal with our sin from the Garden of Eden, to deal with our sin. Next time he comes back, he's coming back to be the King of Kings. You're going to be with him when he comes back? When he comes back, will you be with him in his kingdom? It says his name will be the Lord our righteousness. Um, what he does at the moment of faith when you place your faith in him based on the evidence at hand, your wickedness is then washed away and replaced by his righteousness. He's your righteousness. Paul was a Pharisee, uh, schooled uh, in Pharisaical thought, uh, understood the Torah and the prophets well. Notice when he became a Christian uh, at the feet of the Messiah, notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, but by his doing, uh, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Um, he says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Uh, I don't know how you feel about uh, prepositions. Uh, they're very important. Uh, that prepositional phrase uh, in the Greek text of the New Testament uh, is a sphere. So if I don't know Christ, I'm outside of him and I don't know him because I'm a sinner but he came to die for my sin and rise the third day, victorious over sin and death, that when you come to him in faith, he becomes your savior and your king, and you go from being outside of him to being in him, in his righteousness. He gives you his righteousness so that when you do have that moment where he calls you home, you go a-shouting. Why are you shouting? Well, because you have his holiness. He gave you his righteousness. That's why he came.
I just have to ask you, uh, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Because if he's your Lord, based on the evidence that he was the Lord, uh, that moment you came to know him in faith, he gave you his righteousness and watch, washed away your unrighteousness. But uh, he's coming back again. You know this? He's going to come back to rule and reign as he prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, I love Zechariah chapter 12, verse 13, or chapters 12 and 13, where we read this about the coming of the Messiah. Chapter 12. At the end of time, at the end of the tribulation, God says, I'm going to pour out on the house of David, the regal line, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. So they, he's speaking of the Israelites, the Jews, they will look on me whom they pierced. This is crucifixion language. He then goes on to say, they will mourn for him, speaking of the Messiah, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. He's got more to say. He says, but in that day, when the Messiah comes back, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What's the fountain for? For sin and for impurity. You see, if, well, when we come back with the Lord, when he returns the next time, we as Christians come back with him. It says in Revelation 19, we come back on horses with him. He then rules and reigns from Jerusalem, according to Isaiah 2. And when he comes back, those people that look to him from his people he saves them because he's full of grace and mercy. Up to all those people rejected him for all those years, he comes back to redeem them. That, that's amazing stuff. God speaks through prophecy. He speaks through country western songs and tells the son, your dad's okay, he's with me. And he came to heaven a shouting. But he also speaks to you at, through prophecy because it is so exact. There's no way statistically Jesus is not who he claimed to be. Who is he? Oh, he's the Lord. May he be your Lord. And Merry Christmas to you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your greatness. Um, you did not so disclose yourself to us that you overpowered our free will, nor did you so remove yourself from us we could not find you. Uh, but you presented yourself through the prophetic pen in such a way that a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, young person can study the evidence and understand they're a sinner that needs a savior, and indeed you fit all the descriptions of the Lord our righteousness. Thank you for sharing your righteousness with us. And for those who don't know that righteousness, might this be the day they receive the gift of the gospel of Christ. Amen.